What do you do when the suffering that you're experiencing was caused by your own sin? How do you respond? How do you go back to a holy God who is pure and good and perfect and yet you feel guilty and shame-ridden? That was David's dilemma. What do you do when the suffering that you've caused by your own sin, what do you do? David, let me tell you the story. David, it's in his house. He can't help but win everything he's winning. He was a little shepherd boy, and God raised him up to be king. If you think that's not a big jump, it's like me becoming president of the United States, and I was born in Brooklyn, my mother on welfare, like that. David goes into power because God puts him there, and then he can't help but win Victory after victory. Their little nation is becoming a superpower. Then, one day he peers over his ledge and he sees just his flavor. Ever happened to you? He saw just his flavor. I don't know what your flavor is, but David saw his Your flavor could be found at the bottom of a bottle. Your flavor could be binging and purging on food. Your flavor could be lying and cheating and stealing. I don't know what your flavor is. Maybe Maybe it's, you know, tall, dark, and handsome. I don't know what your flavor is. But you know. Well, David saw his flavor. And he said, I have to have it. Now, he had to break He had to break lots of rules, not least of which is bro code number one. Don't sleep with your boy's girl. It was his boy's girl. And he slept with her. And then he had that man killed because she got pregnant and he tried to cover it up. Ever try to cover up something worse? Um, Ever try to cover up something bad with something worse? That's what he tried to do. And he's there. And he's suffering. He thinks he's gotten away with it, so he's cool at this point. And then Nathan comes to him, confronts him with his sin. He's broken and repents to God. Says, man, I've sinned against God. And if you want to hear his confession, it's found in Psalm 51. We're not going to go over that psalm today. But you can hear what his confession sounds like. God, I blew it. I sinned against you. I really, really did it this time. He does that. And then Nathan comes to him and says, man, you know, God, God heard your prayer. He forgives you. But here's the deal. You're forgiven, but the natural consequences of your actions are going to be real painful. Like it's possible to come here and you have a court hearing and and God just bestows forgiveness on you. And then you just have to experience the grace of God behind bars because the consequences of your sin kind of are walking with you. I don't know what your consequences are, but that's what his were. The consequences of his sin. So Nathan makes that clear. He says, the sword will never leave your house, meaning that there will be pain 
and suffering. Fast forward. He has a son. His name is Amnon. Amnon is enamored with one of David's daughters, his half-sister. Her name is Tamar, and she is just his flavor. And she, he looks to her, and he, you know, there's all sorts of codes broken here, too. He tricks her and rapes her. Then he kicks her out. And in that society, in that society, she was worthless. He had taken everything. She would never marry. In fact, the Bible says so. She would never bear children. She would never have any of the joys that you would normally associate with what a woman from that culture would grow up to think. David hears about this, and you imagine, the scripture doesn't say, but David hears about this, you would imagine what his motivations were, because as a father, you would confront that. As a father, you would address that. But maybe, 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 I don't know, maybe he thought, um, hmm, well, he went and pursued his flavor, and what am I going to do? It's like talking to your kids about not smoking with a Marlboro in your mouth, right? It's kind of rough. You got to do it, but you don't. Why? Because your sin keeps you from doing it. So maybe David's sin kept him from confronting his son. Well, his other son, super handsome, Absalom, warrior, handsome, wise. It was like a chip off the old block. This guy is definitely, he's in the running for being king for sure. Amnon can't stand this. Amnon says, if Ba's not going to do something about it, I'm going to do something about it. David kind of gets the feeling that his son has something up his sleeve, but what is he going to do? He feels ashamed because of his sin. He feels guilty. It's a long story. You should read about it. It's in 2 Samuel. It starts, um, it starts somewhere in 7, chapter 7. And it goes on. And Absalom invites his brother. In short stories, he murders him. Absalom murders Amnon for violating his sister. Absalom runs away. David leaves it the way it is. Then there's a reconciliation of sorts. Absalom comes. A whole bunch of things happen. It's, it's, it's like worthy of a miniseries. A whole bunch of things happen. Absalom comes. He bows before the king. David bends down. And he kisses him. And that's the last time he'll ever speak to Absalom. Years pass by. Absalom is furious. You can feel the resentment building up inside of him because he's the one who did the right thing when his father wouldn't do the right thing. David had sinned with this Bathsheba chick. David had sinned when he didn't correct Tamar, um, Absalom, when he raped um, Amnon, when he raped Tamar. David had sinned. He was not being the right king. Absalom came to the courts. He stood before and started to win the affections of people. He was by the gate, winning the affections of the people. Eventually, he got enough support to create a coup. He overthrows. David hears about it, and him and his boys 
run out of the city. And then David finds himself in the desert, in a dark place. He knows that war is going to happen, and the general on the other side is his son. And that's where we find David. That's where we find the psalm that we're going to be looking at. David is sitting there in the wilderness thinking, why did I let this happen? Why did I pursue Bathsheba? Why didn't I correct my son? Why didn't I address Absalom? Why didn't... There's just so much guilt to go around and there's so much shame. But you know, David's not the only one who's had experiences like this whose own actions caused his own problems. David is not the only one who's ever sinned so great and shame has gone so deep that it affected problem after problem and created problem after problem. Dave is not the only one who's done this. Good night. When I look at my own life, it took me so long, so long, to be able to counsel people with their marriages because my marriage was so broken and I felt so guilty. It took me so long to talk to this church about finances and being generous because I was so broken inside and I didn't want you to think that I was a shyster. So many. Maybe you can think of your own time. Where maybe, maybe you, you can't talk to your daughter about being pure because you look at yourself and you go, oh dear. And you can't talk to your son about being honorable and sticking with something because you left the family. You quit on the family. And you can't confront your brother and sister on their drinking habit because you know yours. And so you find yourself in the dark. And so your brother literally drinks himself to death and you think to yourself as you're sitting at the funeral, I could have stopped this, but shame and guilt. You're in the desert, like David. Your daughter gets pregnant and you go, well, it's, she's running in the family. And you're in the desert. Your son can't seem to stick with anything or be mature and you go, well, it's a desert. What do you do? What does the saint of God do when sin causes their suffering? I don't know. Dave speaks to that in the psalm, Psalm 63. And he gives us a template to respond to God in moments when we're brokenhearted and flawed and deeply grieving. It's found in Psalm 63. Let's stand and read it together. You, it's, let's read, actually, let's read it from the, this is the title. Interestingly enough, this is in the scriptures. This is the title that's in the scriptures, so it's, it's not just like a pericope that somebody added a couple of years ago. This is actually in the original text. So, let's read the psalm together. One, two, three. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you 
my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is God's word. Please have a seat. What do you do? When your sin has caused your suffering, the Bible calls you and I, calls us saints, those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, it calls you something else. Um, The Bible calls those who are in Christ, those who come to Jesus knowing they're guilty, knowing that they have nothing to offer, it calls those people who ask Jesus to give salvation and, and, and kinship, it calls those people saints. Forgiveness and kinship calls those people saints. So what do the saints do? What do Christians do when sin has caused their suffering? Dave here, I think, gives us at least four ways to respond to suffering. And the the big idea for today is that the saints respond to suffering with worship. You go, but wait, I don't feel like worshiping. God will never receive me. No, 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 you, you don't understand. We, we come to Jesus on the basis of Jesus. It's what we just sung. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. In other words, I don't come because I'm a righteous preacher or because I'm a good father or because I'm a kind uh, son. I come to Jesus because I recognize that I am the lowest of the low and that if he does not extend an olive branch to me, I am done for. No good, no good wives in this room. No good husbands. No good sons. No good daughters. Only sinners relying on the mercy of God for salvation. So then, how does one, the saints, respond to suffering with worship? Now, I just told you a a series of sins that Dave committed. And King David is going to come back, and what he's going to do is he's going to express something that we should know, that God, no matter how far we've gone, God is ready to receive us. God is ready to forgive. God is willing and pursuing us. 
and that our joy is not found in trying to figure out how else we're going to get through this suffering, but rather in surrendering to God and accepting what he allows. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. That was the experience that I was just talking about. David is in the desert right now. He's experiencing his beautiful, beautiful son. Is looking to kill him. And he's got an army to do it. And so no matter how this goes, David loses. Because he's got his own army. And so what is he going to do? He's going to ask his brothers to kill their brothers. This just ends badly. This can't end well. And David, in the midst of that, in the pressure of that, in the pain of that, David goes before God and he says this. This is the first line. It's, it's so powerful. He says, you, God, are my God. He doesn't start with, God, where are you? It doesn't start with, well, God, you know, I messed up real bad. If you could get me out of this one. He goes, no, no, no. He starts on the basis of who God is. God, you are my God. You are my God. And by the way, I'm yours. You have not left me. I know I'm dirty. I know I'm grimy. I know I'm filthy. I know I don't deserve the love that you give, the forgiveness that you bestow, or the kindness that you dole out. I know I don't deserve any of that. Don't you forget. You're my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And boy, isn't that appropriate. Because he's got a whole army thirsting for water. And he's saying this, listen, more than, more than what, more, we need more than just satisfying our physical needs. Yep, 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 there's a real problem here. There's a real problem here. We actually need water. But more than we need physical water, we need you to satisfy our longing and our thirst. We need you. Because everything else that we pursue, every other course that we take, everything that we do, will only add to our suffering. David's going to feel this for the rest of his life. This is not a, a, a kind of suffering that goes away from one day to the next. This is serious. David first responds with worship, and then he's going to let the worship overflow. He's going to let it overflow into everything. So, how do the saints respond to suffering? The saints respond to suffering with worship. Let me tell you four ways that David instructs us to worship. If you're taking notes, I would, I would write this down. Four ways to respond to my, the sin, my sin in suffering by worship. Four ways to grow from sin and suffering to worship. First, we see that David reminds himself, and so you could put down recollection. Did I say recollection? I'm sorry. I'm, I, uh, yeah, that is, I'm, I'm right. Um, that was my fault. I'm sorry, Liz. That's my fault. It's recollection. You 
see it in verse 2 and in verse 6. Do you see it there? I have been in the sanctuary. I have been. I have seen, rather. I have seen you in the sanctuary. And behold your power and your glory. And look at verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. See, when, when we're in that dark place, when it's like a desert, when we're feeling the pain of our own sin, the first thing we need to do, here's, here's what we actually do. What we wind up doing is recollecting our sin. We recollect our sin. When we recollect our sin, we rehearse it. Shame builds. Anybody else with me on this? Shame builds. You feel terrible. You, so what happens, right? This is, how it, this is how it works out in, like, church world, right? So what happens is, is that you sin against God, and then you remind yourself, so you, so you, and you feel ashamed, so you don't pursue God. And then you remind yourself of what you've done, and so you feel more shame, so you don't pursue God. And you do this for, some of you, some of you, that pattern started when you were 18, and you're in your 40s, and just coming back to Christ, because you divorce yourself from the very one who can give you hope. Don't recall your sin so much as you recall your Savior. I need to rehearse this in my soul. I need to remember this in my heart. Is anybody else warm in here, by the way? Yeah, just maybe one or two of you? Hey, anybody, can we turn on the air conditioners? Right? Okay, thanks. Because I'm up here and I'm sweating. I'm thinking I'm doing a good job, but I'm looking at your eyes and it's like, okay, I'm about ready to go. I know, I understand. Me too. Me too. I'm one. Where was I? Recollection. So listen to me. Listen to me. It's reminding ourselves who God is and what he's done. If you forget this, you'll always be stuck in guilt and shame. You'll always be stuck in the place where God, you, you sense that God won't love you or help you. It's recollection. We remind ourselves. That's what David said. On my bed, I remember you. Let me tell you what that looks like for the Christian. What that looks like for me is, go, yeah, you know what? When Satan reminds me of what a bad father I've been or what a bad husband I've been or what a bad pastor I've been. I go, you know what? It's true and it's worse than you say because there's a lot more ugliness in my heart. But there was one who died on the cross for the very ugly sins that I right now declare. I remind myself that there was one who bled and died for those very sins. I remind myself that those sins are not my identity, that my Savior's Death on the cross is what defines me. I remind myself of all that Jesus has done. He's come from heaven. He's come to earth to live the life that I should have lived, but I did not. And die the death that I deserve, the punishment that I deserve, he took on himself while giving me the honor that he deserves. So he, he did this great exchange. It's amazing. I receive Jesus' honor, something I don't deserve. And he receives the punishment for my sin, something that he does not deserve. Got to recall that. Beloved, if you forget that, you'll go to despair. 
If you ignore that, you won't remember the goodness of the gospel. It's what we do here. What we do when we come together is we get, we're reminded about it. We're reminded in music. We're reminded in the scriptures. We're reminded in the sermon. Every week we need to be reminded together that it is Christ. It's in Christ alone that we stand. It's in Christ alone that we live. Did you think you were more righteous before you acted on that sin? Because there's like 10,000 other sins that you could remember and feel bad about because you're divorced from them through time. You just feel bad about this one sin. But let me tell you something. There's 10 million sins that you've been forgiven for. So attribute the gospel to your sin. Attribute it to your life. Let it wash over you. The problem is, is that we're so stuck on this American form of Christianity where we got to be good to get God, and that is just not true. Listen, you don't have to be good to get God. In fact, the good don't get God, because the good still think they're good. The only people who get God are the people who go to him and say, I'm pretty good. Like, what you're, here's the good news. You are sitting in a room full of sinners. And that's fantastic news. So I don't have to fake it with you. I don't have to lie to you. I don't have to pretend to be a better man than I'm not. I'm the worst person in the room. But I'm telling you, Jesus loves me like I'm good bread, man. I'm telling you. It's, and he does to you too if you're in Christ. But you've got to remember that. It's hard to remember that when you're, when you're feeling the consequence of your sin. It's hard to remember that when you're doing year three on a seven-year bid. It's hard to remember that when you're experiencing the consequences of the thing that you feel shame about. But the first thing you're going to have to do if you're going to break into worship, if worship is in fact the solution to our suffering from our sin, we're going to have to recollect. So recollection. Secondly, Valuation. This is important. You see that in verse 3? Valuation. In other words, value. You're going to bestow a a level of of, uh, honor to it. It's valuation. Verse 3 says this. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Do you see that? Because David esteems God's love better than anything else. You know, when I'm in the desert moment of my life, you know what I do? I go, I, would just, I just want to die. And David says instead, your love is better than life. Your love is, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how this is going to end. I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. But I want you to know, no matter how this thing goes down, you are, you are the most valuable thing to me. Rehearse that in your heart. There has, your heart has to have value. Because here's the deal. Okay. So let me see if I can express this in a, in a way that makes sense. So say, for instance, um, I get a call today, and somebody says, hey, you had an uncle. He lives in Puerto Rico. He was the last rich guy on the island. He has, and he'd have to be at this point, right? Puerto Rico's going through an issues. Um, but he left you. $20 million. He left you $20 million. All you got to do is come to Puerto Rico within the next week and just pick it up. Well, the first thing that I do is cancel whatever appointment I got for the next week, right? <laughs> the second thing I do is I drive my car to, you know, uh, you know where the, um, 
the parking thing is, right? I give the guy the keys, I go, keep the car, that's my tip. Keep the car, it's yours. And he'll go, that's not a very good tip. I go, I don't care, I'm not coming back for this. Why? Because it doesn't matter, it's not, it does, it's not my value anymore. Then I go, and let's say as I'm going there, all sorts of things happen. I get a plane layover. I have to stay in the airport. Let's say the taxi doesn't come to pick me up, so I have to walk like 10 miles to the other side of the island to collect my $15 million check. Do you think that I have? You know what I would do? I was like, oh my gosh, the, the cab didn't show up. This is a lovely day on a sunny beach to walk to get $15 million. You know why? Because my value is in what is ahead of me. My value is in what lies before me. My value is not in my present circumstances. Come, come, come. When God is our value, when our Savior is our value, then we can go through all sorts of things throughout this life, even if we ourselves call them, because we consider God as more valuable. Because we consider God as more wonderful than the pain. Like, is the pain that I'm going through right now great? Yes! Am I belittling that pain? Are we? Listen, the world will have you do one of two things. One is ignore your pain. Come on, man, it's not really that bad. Don't worry, you know, you ain't, you ain't got as bad as, like, kids in Africa, right? Like, you, you, it's not that bad. And so there's one to ignore the pain. And then there's another philosophy where that's all you got to look at. That's all you got is this pain and this suffering and this difficulty and this heartache. And that's all you do. And you just harbor and harp on that. Oh, man. In the gospel, we go, the pain is real. But that, the, the suffering that I'm going through, the circumstances of my life, the things that I own, that's not where my value is. My value is in Christ, the one who valued me. The one who died for me. When we find that, now watch this. If that's true, then nothing can shake you. You are unshakable. You know why? Because you could take my car. You could take my kids. You can take my wife. You can take my position in this church. But you can't take my Jesus. And if Jesus is my greatest value, then I can get sick and be near death and still have joy in my heart. I can, and listen, I could, have a, I could be dying of a sexually transmitted disease because of my own sin. And my values in Christ. I am un shakable at that point. You could destroy my finances. You could do whatever. Because when you have something that you value at the highest level, every other lesser value doesn't matter. So you gotta, you gotta value God. So the first is recollection. The next is valuation. The third way we worship or grow in worship is expression. This is important. This is important. Expression. Verses 4, and we can jump to verse 7 too because they both say that. I will praise, look at verse 4. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Verse 7. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Do you see what David is doing? He's going, he's expressing. He's announcing, he's telling God how great he is. And sometimes we just need to do that. Because, I mean, good night. Haven't you done this? I've done this, I know. Where someone goes, how you doing? Oh, man, things are bad. Things are real bad. 
man, I messed up here, and now this is the consequences, it's bad, it's bad. And we rehearse it. But wouldn't it be something if we value, if we, if we in fact remember all that Jesus has done on the cross so that we could be saved? If we in fact, rem- if we value him above all of our other things, wouldn't it be something if we could express this? Now, here's, here's a pitfall. Christians, when they're in suffering, many times they fall into a pitfall. They jump over the first two to go to the third one. So they're in suffering, and you go, hey, how you doing? Now, they don't believe this. The, what I'm, the response that I'm going to give you, they don't believe in their hearts at all. Some people do. I'm talking about the ones that don't. Um, they, they don't believe it in the least. They go, you go, hey, how you doing? And they'll say, man, I'm blessed and highly favored. I'm prosperous and well. As, and what they're trying to do is it's not coming out of an overflow of their reminders uh, or their re- remembrance of what Jesus has done. It's not coming from an overflow of their valuation of Christ. It, they're just trying to talk themselves up. It's like, it's like going to a football game and you're a football player. And they're like, have you ever seen that? Like in the thing, they're like jumping up and down. They're kind of excited, right? And they're like, yeah, we're going to kill them. We're going to do it, you know. And you see that, and it's like, wow, these guys are amped up. Well, they're trying to amp themselves up. Christians, we don't do that so good. You just look silly. Because eventually there's a breaking point, and then everybody wonders, well, you know, then everybody mocks you. Where's your Christianity now? But rather than doing that, rather than leapfrogging, recollection and valuation. When we, when, oh, Jesus, I can't believe remembering. Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin. Valuation. My salvation, the salvation that you bestowed upon me, the fact that you love me, even if they don't love me, it is the highest value that I have. Because you love me, even if they don't love me, I'm loved. Because you value me, even if I'm not valued by them, that is the greatest gift. Because you care for me, even if it looks like I'm losing my house and my clothes and my car and my money and all that other stuff, I know that you will care for me, even if it means taking me to the right homeless shelter. You see, because he is... And then expressing that to him. Taking the time to express to Jesus that very truth. And then let's look at the fourth. Remember, what are we talking about? This is our response. We are growing in worship. This is our response to suffering. It's worship. And how we grow in worship is recollection, valuation, expression, and then satisfaction. Write that down. Satisfaction. And you can see this in verse 5 and 8. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Verse 8. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. So, this is the beauty of this. When we are satisfied in Christ, all other temptations lose their power. Now we're talking about what might happen in the future. Because we're, we're in this wilderness experience right now because of, the temptation, uh, because of the sin that we fell into. But what about the future? Well, we find satisfaction. We find our satisfaction in Jesus. And that's just wherever we are. Even if we're in a dry and thirsty land. 
even if nothing is, if everything has been stripped from us, we find our comfort in Christ. Now, here's the thing, guys. Everything I just told you, you're going to forget by tomorrow. When, the, when it gets really bad, you're not going to do anything that I just told you. Neither am I. That's who we are. That's how we are. But I would beg you, I would beg you to be reminded of all that Jesus did. Because you see here a king in the Old Testament who was dragged into the wilderness, who was running for his life, who was paying for his own sins. But listen to me. The good news for the Christ follower is that there was another king. And he too was led into the wilderness but not because of his sins, but because of our sins. There was one who saw the sins of his children and did not turn a blind eye, but said, somebody's got to pay for all that sin, and then decided to make the account his own. There was someone who was pursued by the very people he loved, and had nurtured and did not go to war with them but laid his life down not only to them but laid his life down for them. And I'm telling you, beloved, that when this gets a hold of your heart, no matter how bad you've been, your sin is not so bad that Jesus' grace is not greater still. The pit that you've dug for yourself is not so deep that Jesus is not deeper still. He is the one. He is the greater David. He is the one who sacrifices his life. He is the one who can pick you out of your sin-suffering mess. He is the one, listen to me, who like David would trust the Father in heaven but not for his deliverance. When David trusted the Father, he was eventually delivered from here. Absalom's army was destroyed. David went back to the throne. Not so with King Jesus. As he trusted the Father, the Father poured all the wrath that you and I deserve on Jesus, which is why we can run to Jesus and not have to feel guilt and shame because Jesus already, you know what? I deserve to be forsaken. I deserve to be beaten. I deserve to be whatever consequence you think. And then you go, oh my gosh, that's what Jesus did. He took the pain. He took the suffering. He took the consequence that you and I deserve. That's the gospel, folks. And that's why we could say, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water.